Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome back. This is now part two of our episode where we go deep into the outdoor cat, feral cat, cat control literature. We hope you enjoy. What we've seen in the past 30-odd years is a move towards what gets called the no-kill, no-kill solutions. So you have shelters saying, okay, we won't kill, people squabble over the term euthanasia, but we won't put down unadoptable animals like we used to to make space for the ones that were adoptable, then we can find them owners at least. We'll make shelters no-kill. We'll try to get localities to adopt no-kill strategies. And so then the problem is once you start, once you stop killing the, let's say the unadopt, the ones that have trouble getting, finding new homes, then you run out of space. And then so it goes hand in hand with then leaving more of them on the street outside. And so then a very well-meaning next step is, okay, well, at least if we neuter all of them, they can't have more babies, right? That should work. And so then we end up with the pros and cons of that. Um, people like me and Tony will look at that and say, that's great. They may not be reproducing in, in, in the most ideal world. Ideal scenarios, maybe the population will just die out from attrition because you're not replacing it themselves. But in the meantime, they're killing lots of stuff. And then there's a the question of whether that actually works in the real world to, to just neuter as many as you can while you're feeding them outside. Um, and that's what, that's what we got next is a pile of articles about, yeah. about this stuff. Um, and so the stuff that Tony gets on his Facebook threads <laughs> tends to be um, the same list over and over again. Um, and it's coming out of uh, an advocacy group called Alley Cat Allies, and they have their fact sheets about TNR, Trap Neuter Release. We're, let's not discuss their fact sheet overall. I'll just say that, that we're pulling these articles now from their fact sheet and from other stuff, that, but we're trying to be f- fair by looking at sort of the fundamental articles in favor of TNR, um, Trap Neuter Release. And I'll say that a lot of my overall characterization or overall comment when I look at these is a lot of them seem to happen on college campuses. There's stu- there, there are places where it would seem relatively easy to control a population of something, of, of cats, because your, your space is defined in a way that's, that isn't so much in just, in the open, just like the neighborhoods of West Philly or something like that. And that you've got students who have flexible schedules and can organize into clubs to take care of these, these cats in ways that are more intensive than just people doing what they can after work after they put the kids to bed, you know. And, and so they're, I don't see the, the university studies as generalizable in a useful way, but we're going to get into all that. So the one I still wanted to start with, for me, is actually the most interesting one for, well, there are a lot of interesting ones, one of the more interesting ones for, for big cities. Because this looked at a whole bunch of colonies in Rome, Italy. Very big city. Management of feral domestic cats in the urban environment of Rome, Italy. In preventive veterinary medicine. There's a bunch of authors. I'm going to say Natoli et al. (laughs) And spare all these wonderful Italian people my slaughtering of their names. But basically looked at uh, population trends in cat colonies in Rome over nine years, um, starting with about 1,600 cats in uh, 1991, down to about 1,300 cats in 2000 in these particular colonies, and where you had dedicated caretakers, dedicated trapping and neutering before re-releasing. And frankly, this gets listed as a success. It, it, it does, but let's <laughs> let's let's talk about the last line of the abstract. I know, hit it. I was going to read it, but you go ahead. This suggests that all these efforts, without an effective education of people to control the reproduction of house cats as a prevention for abandonment, are a waste of money, time, and energy. And unfortunately, I'm going to comment later that I think this also applies to trapping and killing. But that what they're saying is in a big city with a lot of people releasing cats and and having their pet cats breed. You can you can neuter as many as you, you want. It's going to be hard to prevent, hard to really shrink the population. Some of the studies that we're going to talk about, one of them does say I forget which one that that it's um, is less effort to do TNR than euthanasia. The assumption is that the way that you euthanize them is by trapping them and then euth- is is injecting. <laughs> and the the thing is is. <laughs> What about the How would you kill them, Tony? Of, the, of Ruger 1022 with a, with a suppressor, <laughs> you know, like that's what you. That's how you do it. You don't. You don't. You don't trap them. You bait them and then you shoot them. 
a little hard to do in West Philly. Right, um, but like that's how you do it. Or maybe in Rome. It's a and that's how it's, You know how people the thing rifle is, bullets flying all over Rome? I tell you what, though. This is done. It is done a lot. It's just that you, no one can do a study like that because people would flip out if you're killing cats. You know, like the one who's no, but f- you've actually brought up an important point because one of the rhetorical lines that you get from the cat outdoor cat loving community is that we've tried trapping and killing; it doesn't work. We've got a, modeling studies we're going to look at, but you can't find anyone who's actually done a study where they say, "Here's 40 colonies. We're going to take 20 of them, trap them, and kill them. We're going to take the other 20." Trap a neuter on, you know. Try this for ten years, see what happens. Yeah, and the thing is, it's it like, just isn't done. If, if if you if you know why? Because they never because because <laughs> because universities have have anything that has a backbone has an animal protocol right. thing and has to be approved, and that that no one's going to propose that. There yeah. is even though that's the work that needs to be done. And even though that's the state of the art that's being done anyway. Right. There's yeah. so right. many wildlife refuges and wildlife management areas and large parcels of private land that are completely cat free. Because people patrol it with a twenty-two, Yeah. And they don't want to yeah. talk about that. So anyways, let's talk about the Rome set real quick. Any other thoughts on it? While I appreciated the bravado of the final sentence of the abstract, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that, in my opinion, that they overstepped a little bit there. But, um, but it does, I mean... They use they use they soften it by saying suggest instead of this does <laughs> these efforts are, um, but it, but the, and they're notoriously Italian in that r- regard. I would say uh, my Italian colleagues are all much more likely to think that they're saving the world as they <laughs> as they they have a bravado about them. Their yeah. scientists do. It's really funny. But anyway. Um, it's interesting that one of the things that I thought was that was really key in this is that that they did they you know they do see that the neutering can work, but it takes three years before it really has any kind of an effect. So three years after the neutering date, and then and it's also time consuming and very expensive. Right? Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I that I I pulled up. Um, and just remembered from a few years ago when we we adopted the dog from the ACCT and over in um, the animal control Philly. for Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, right. The animal control for Philadelphia. That um, they take in that year, they had taken in thirty some thousand animals, and um, and a third of those were dogs, and eighty percent of those were. Uh, uh, bull terrier mixes of some sort. The sweet pit bull mix. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we and that's what we brought home. And we, Polly was a great dog. Um, but anyway, but the 20,000 animals were cats. Yeah. I mean, and, we, and we're, we're here now talking about a cat problem in Philadelphia, right? I mean, like, this is what sparks this, right? We see it happening. We know it's happening. Right, we can like I said, we're gonna see. I'm gonna see a cat probably walking the half block back to my car. Um, it's shocking when you think about that level of numbers and what kind of no. The the you know, estimates are something like three hundred thousand unowned cats yeah, in Philadelphia. Right, right, right. Which is a pretty large portion of the living population of Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one we want to talk about is actually the it's kind of the ER study in the TNR world. Um, this is one that you see, or we will see, cited a lot. It is called the evaluation of the effect of a long-term trap, neuter, return, and adoption program on a free-roaming cat population. This is by Julie, Lev- Julie Levy, David Gale, and Leslie Gale. And this was published in JAVMA, the Journal of the American Veterinary Medicine Association. Uh, you'll see Julie Levy's name pop up a lot. She's a major... Um, researcher but also proponent of trap neuter release and this study basically around uh, Gainesville, Florida. Again, university at the core of it, um, University of Florida. Uh, and this one um, gets gets cited a lot as a major success of trap neuter release. And the numbers, to run through them real quick, this is from 1991 to 2002. Sorry, I think 200 odd original cats. 47% of which removed for adoption, 11% euthanized, 15% disappeared but 15% disappeared, 6% accounted for dead, and then 6% moved into the wooded environment, and then 15% remaining for a long time. And so the, I know in Cat Wars, Pete Mara like lays into this one saying, this isn't about TNR, this is about 
adoption, euthanization, um, and then the rest of them, a lot of the rest of them dying ugly deaths. Yeah, I mean, it's um, really strange, like, research design. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's well, like, let's I just mean, look at everything. Well, that what they, what... But that's really what people do in these things. They don't just neuter and release, and they do try to pull out the ones they can adopt. Right. This is a. This is. A, I mean, this is one of those studies that is likely to succeed because, in my opinion, your your you have an autocorrelation there between decreasing cat numbers, and what you've done is you've effectively removed them from the population. There's a small number that a relatively small number that's going back out, right? Yeah. And then they had. A large number that were adopted and they went to other homes and they were taken outside the area and so th- this is not really a it's a much stronger advocate for catching the cats and giving them to someone right to keep in a house is what is what it really but is wouldn't it, which yeah. we're quick you know, in terms right, of right right of course but right in terms of studying using this as an example of effective solutions there's there would be no difference if that cat was euthanized or adopted in the purposes of the study, right? Right. That's right. And so... It depends. This is actually important. It depends on your goal. I mean, I think we look at this and say our goal is the elimination of that outdoor cat population, whereas I think a lot of the people who are doing this for do, are, are taking care of the cats, their goal is alleviation of cat suffering and, and prolonging cat lives. Right. Um, and so they have very different goals than we do and so these studies get evaluated or get read in very different ways mm-hmm. depending but, what our goals are but when they're but this study is used to counter people who want to you know at least in, at the very least include euthanasia as a possible solution right and, and they're so, like so like, it doesn't work vacuum effect and you're like well what did the vacuum effect apply to adoption is is well, we're going to get into the vacuum effect to euthanization. But this one, I'm looking at like 58 percent of the cats were were removed or killed immediately, like just by human action. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a pretty big mm-hmm. chunk you're pulling out of there. Um, this is another one of these ones where you have relatively confined cat population, a veterinary school, volunteers, etc. And so, I'm, a lot of factors that don't necessarily apply to some guy at the end of the block feeding cats in the alley and doing his best to trap a few of them. Well, I mean, I think, I actually, I think this is one of those places where the authors of the study were spinning it in such a way that focuses on the trap and return side of it when really the adoption and euthanasia side is the bigger, is the actual more important part Most of the story. Most of what they did was that. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so, of course, if you remove cats from a population and, and sustain that removal, there are going to be no cats. If we look at the other studies where... They do trap neuter return. One of the things that you see that's the most striking change to me was demography changes. So those are yeah. those are age classes, right? So you see a significantly lower number of kittens and things. That's in the South African one, right? Right, yeah. But then, but then the but then the it, it frees up food, and so cats are healthier and they live longer, and so the number of adult cats in the area stays high. And the relative abundance doesn't really change all that much, and so in a way, that's a vacuum effect, right? Other cats are—they're not—they're not coming, they're not immigrating into the population, but they are staying. It's just like an aging population in the United States. Our demographies flip flop now, where we're very top heavy in yeah, older yeah, yeah, generation yeah, yeah. and older people, and so it's exactly the same way. If you have lower you, turnover, you've, yeah, you've cut yeah. down fertility rates, but you've freed resources up for stray cats that allow for more cats to survive yeah. and stay healthy, which means they're going to last longer in in the natural environment. So, so um, I think that this is a this is, was a really well spun article from someone who's clearly tipping her data towards a certain end goal. <laughs> so, in my opinion, the next one. Let's look at. This is the part, the simulation, right? Estimation of effectiveness of three methods of feral cat population controlled by use of a simulation model. That is. Thank you for reading the title. Yeah, sure. <laughs> by McCarthy, Levine, and Reed. Um, and this was also in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Javma again. We we're getting into modeling because, like we said, people don't do direct comparisons between trapping and removal versus trapping, neutering, and returning. This is one that I found really interesting because they look at what if you don't neuter them exactly, 
what if you just give them vasectomies um, and don't and you don't you basically tie their tubes instead of pulling out their ovaries or pulling out their 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 testicles. It's like you're so you leave them hormonally intact even though they're sterile. Yeah. Um, and so first, I'll comment that that is socially impossible. That like what people complain about in terms of cats is them yowling and screaming and peeing on everything. It's one of the things you get when you neuter a male cat is it's not going to spray on everything and it's not going to be outside yowling. Um, so setting that aside, it's interesting because you you have uh, that you're comparing different ways of trying to you're comparing that vasectomy. <laughs> I don't know. They use a, a long acronym T um, V H R I think. Mm-hmm. In comparing that with trapping and removing and trapping and neutering, um, they say that comparing them that you have to get a really high capture percentage um, for trap neuter release to work, vasectomying the, the cats, uh, leaving them hormonally intact, would do better at shrinking the colonies. And the reasons are fascinating to me um, that when you totally neuter them, that you reduce mortality of adult male cats because they don't wander as much, they don't fight as much. You reduce the mortality of the adult females because they reproduce less and are just under less stress from their their reproductive cycles. You you increase the kitten survival of whatever kittens are born in the colony because the other cats tolerate kittens better. And so I, I guess reading into this that adult male cats will kill kittens that they find if they're if they're trying to, this is something I, I, I'm inferring from like knowing about other animals that like you read this like lions, you know, they'll kill babies to bring the females back into heat so they can reproduce with them. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm going to drop in another reference to an article we didn't get to discuss, but which this McCarthy et al. article references, which is Demographic differences between urban feeding groups of neutered and sexually intact free-roaming cats following trap-neuter return procedure by Gunther, Finkler, and Turkle from the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. This is in May 2011. This article describes the results of sort of an experiment of taking four cat colonies, leaving two of them totally unneutered, neutering as many cats as they could in the other two colonies and comparing the results. So what we're, what we're discussing in terms of the way that cats survive or don't survive and that kitten survival rates, that kind of stuff, a lot of that is drawn from this article that I'm dropping in here. Now back to the discussion. It's all kind of brutal. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you're sort of saying that like yeah. the more effective, but it's kind of... Well, they kill, they, right, they kill other, they kill the genes of other Males. Yeah. That's yeah. basically what they're doing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, to so make the, sure theirs make it. So it's basically modeling and saying, hey guys, you know, the, the trapping and removing actually worked better than TNR. Um, and then this other method would work better than TNR, at least how they're modeling it. I don't know. What do you guys think of this? I, I, had, I struggled with this one a little bit because I, the, the description of the models. The, the thing that I, I found interesting in them was that they were. There doesn't seem to be a strong basis in in some of the fact, but I, it is rather fascinating that basically they take mates out of rotation. Basically, they take males out of rotation, and it, re- it leads to higher reproductive decline among them. And so the idea of that makes sense to me. That oh, and, 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 and nature still- has a way of of regulating populations, right? I mean, that's that's what. And, and so letting, as a, as a person who studies ecology, it's always best to try to mimic what nature does in a way. Yeah. And so if you let things sort of jive with nature, then they have a way of working themselves out. And it seems like this hierarchical structure is a really strong, it's a significant. So the dominant male cats. Makes a big difference. Will, will muscle out That's other right. cats. That's right. And even if, so, so if you and have your dominant male cats hormonally intact, but sterile, right, right. then they'll muscle out cats that might yeah. actually be be fertile yeah 
but just but just not yeah, it's dominant. A, it's a real it's a real monkey wrench in in, in, the, yeah. in the whole plan there by having them sterilized. So you sort of have them in there like pres- suppressing other yeah, reproduction. Yeah, yeah, it really is interesting. And, and so doing you, as much mating as they want to mate because right. they they can't they're shooting blanks. Yeah, and yeah, mm-hmm. and they're and you've and you've introduced a new you've introduced a, a second regulatory mechanism that you didn't that you don't currently have. Yeah. Right. So and actually one that you're disrupting. In most cases, if you take cats out of the population like that. And I'll return to my point that this is fascinating, but if you have all these cats yelling and spraying everywhere, <laughs> people are going to be really pissed off about it. This next one was in plus one. Um, is that how you say it? plus or PLOS? PLOS. P- the Public Library of Science. When I've heard people say they say PLOS. PLOS. Some people say PLOS. Yeah. Two yeah. ways to say it the way I didn't say That's it. Right. <laughs> so, um, simulating free-roaming cat population management options in open demographic environments um, by, again, long list of authors. Miller et al. I'll point out that Julia Levy's in this one also, as well as Felicia Nutter, who is another person who pops up a lot in the TNR literature. This is one, another modeling one, comparing trapping and releasing to trap neutering and releasing, and sort of saying that if you can isolate a population, then trapping and removing would seem to work better or faster than trapping and neutering and releasing them, which just to me makes intuitive sense. If you, if you don't have any more cats coming in, then removing the cats would be faster at reducing the population than leaving the cats. But then that connectivity, sort of like the ability of new cats to move in, screws with either method. I find this disheartening in general. That like we might be squabbling about or fighting about sort of what's the best way to control cats? Should we take them out and kill them, or should we, or, or just leave them and neuter them? And the answer might be that neither works very well. This is kind of the conclusion of the Rome article. Like if people keep dumping their cats, right? You well, know? Th- the thing is, is that no one wants to talk about is euthanasia in situ. Don't put them in a trap them and then take them to a vet and, and inject them. Shoot them in the field. But you can't shoot enough of them. Maybe like this is the thing. Like it's, I think you can. Even even here, I mean, like this, or like on the edge of the Wissahickon or something like that, or the edge of Cobb's Creek. I don't know, man. Like I, it's it's certainly a thing that needs to be on the table. And it's here's the other thing about just like one of the arguments that we say is that if you have TNR in these areas where cats are cared for, then it encourages people to dump. There's a whole social dimension of it, yeah. Right, well, people will, 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 will intentionally drop their cats there. It'll attract cats, you know, as in the people who yeah, abandon them. Yeah, you're actually giving me a segue here on what I want to, one of the things I want to say. So what about, what no one wants to talk about is the other one, is that if people know that an abandoned cat may end up dead... It'll be a deterrent to drop it to. to let's just know. let's just go Roman about it. Let's post dead cats high up for everyone to see. Right, but Sorry. like you know, if it's like a if it's part of you know if it's an op if it's a clear no, option that like this cat you might be euthanized if it's caught in the field then you leave Fluffy here Fluffy dies right then people, yeah, people are gonna, gonna drop Fluffy yeah. Fluffy maybe I was gonna say that um, what I take away is is partly the. Is there's a, a cost element in my mind? I'm 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 trained more in the social sciences than I am in the natural sciences. I look at it. And I'm like, well, how much are we spending? Whether it's volunteer time, donated stuff on maintaining outdoor cats, and if we just stopped doing that and spent the money on just like spaying every cat we can, like in just like knock on people's doors and you got a cat, we're gonna we can do it right now. Bring it out. You know, that would be more effective. You know, and a better use of, of, of dollars, taxpayer dollars, philanthropic dollars, whatever. Well, yeah, I hear you, and, and I agree. It's one of the things that we have to, we're dealing with is the normalization of no kill, right? Yeah. The normalization of TNR, the normalization of cat, of community cats, yeah. right? Like Alley Cat Allies, which we'll get into next, but in my opinion, is a, analogous to the. Heartland Institute. They are a misinformation factory. <laughs> that they are. That they are. And they're winning. They're they're getting TNR. Well, that's that's a rhetorical. You're right. And but I think there's a, there's a whole PR question which I. And cats. This is an, an ecological issue of 
with hemisphere-wide implications when it comes to migratory birds. And this cannot be hijacked by an emotionally irrational small group of people. These, these decisions need to be made by wildlife agencies. And all the options need to be on the table. So I want to get through the rest of the study. We have a few more left that are mainly modeling ones. There is one about managing feral cats on a university campus. It's called Managing Feral Cats on a University's Campuses. How many are there and is sterilization having an effect? By Amanda Jones and Colleen Downs in the Journal of Applied Animal Welfare Science. It's another one that gets cited on the pro-TNR side. This is one, Clint, you talked about a little bit before, where you see shifting demographic mm -hmm. in cat colonies. You want to talk about it really quick? Yeah, sure. So so this is where they um, they saw... They saw a uh, they saw a reduction in cat populations with, I guess they used TNR, right? Yeah, yeah, they used TNR, and um, and but they were modest. They were they were they were not they were like eight percent, maybe something like that. It was relatively low, not huge, I think. Yeah, and then but it took, but one of the striking things that I said is that earlier is that the demo, the demographics of the populations changed significantly. So you see a much higher percentage of adult cats in the places where there's sterilization than you do in the populations where um, they haven't, they've done none. It's really interesting to me. And if you go back and you look at the other data that we see too, the, um, it took three years for neutered cats to actually, to have an effect for neutering, to start having an effect where the cat would last three more years past that. So yeah. um, I guess is that maybe the average time for a, a wild cat, a feral cat. Um, and so it's, it's basically freeing up resources, right? So the base, you know, you have a, every, every environment has a carrying capacity for the number of individuals that it can sustain. And that can be defined by how much cat food gets put in bowls. By how much campus, cat food, yeah. cat food, how much prey there is, all of those factors, climate, a number of things. But what you're definitely seeing here is that, uh, a resource, a, a, a release of resources like this, and this is this is largely ubiquitous across the entire biological world, right? Is that if you have, when more resources become available, populations grow, and then as resources decline, they decline, and then they find a set they, they sort of vary around a carrying capacity for that population. And actually, uh, anecdotally, I have a friend that's a wildlife biologist with the DNR in, in West Virginia, and she said she's a large uh, mammologist, and so she studies uh -huh. deer populations. And yeah. one of the things that they see is if they double the deer kill in a single year, the next year the reproductive rates of the does goes up by a hundred percent. Because they got so more to eat, they recover almost yeah. immediately. And yeah. and deer will deer, white-tailed deer are actually apparently will um, go to they will twin instead of having singletons when resources availability is high uh, so as soon as you do it they basically just recover immediately and so management techniques are really difficult on that now i was actually comparing some of this to thinking about that i just i just was looking at um, data for valley forge uh, national historical park and they're doing a deer management program there. For several years. Calling right. Deer they have been, yeah. they still are. They, it, it's continual. And that's yeah. an interesting part of the story is that they've, they've effectively managed it back to the level they want, although they are on the high end of their, their, yeah. their, what they want it to be, but they, they can't stop <laughs> because no, cause the neighborhoods you know, around there are full right, of deer. Right. Also. Everything's full of deer. So, but if you keep killing them, right? If they keep taking them out, and I and I, you can keep them right, at a so, manageable level, right? It's right. You can maintain them, and yeah. and I was thinking about this when Tony said the best way to do this is to shoot and kill them in place and leave them there. <laughs> so, so you can leave them as a message to the other cats in the neighborhood. <laughs> but anyway, they, um, um, but you can't. So who's going to do that, right? So who keeps doing that over and over again? And I think what we just continually keep seeing with this literature is that. If you think about the feral cat population as a bathtub, right, and you're filling it <laughs> with water, and the water is the cats, the drain is not the answer. The spigot is the issue, right? That's where you need to turn it off. We need to stop getting these cats coming into these things. Yeah. And then these techniques, you know, if we could, if we can stop on that end, 
and on the influx of new cats to the populations, then these other management techniques will be far more effective than they than they have been, and yeah. that we've seen in all of the literature. So, well, the, well, the other thing is we also have to stop inputting resources to these stop cats. Feeding. Have to stop. Well, feeding that's them. right. That's yeah. right. And we have to stop sheltering them. We have to, and that, to me, is a cultural issue because TNR advocacy seems to be going hand in hand with feeding cats and sheltering them. You know, the, the, and they'll argue that you need to get them accustomed to people so you can trap them. Yeah. But then the same poster from Alley Cat Allies says that these cats can't be socialized and therefore they can't be adopted. So, I mean, it makes no sense. Or they'll refer to them as wild and talk right. about them, argue that they have a place in the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever, they use whatever argument. Have to feed them. Whatever, yeah. yeah, exactly. Then you shouldn't have to feed them. So to me, it seems like at the very least, stop getting new cats in. And part of that to me is get rid of no-kill shelters because then that's one of the main reasons cats get dumped is because the, you can't bring them to a shelter. People who have cats that don't want them anymore feel guilty about taking them to a place that's going to... I mean, they want to they want to take them to a place. If the place doesn't take them anymore, they're full, then they're going to dump them, you know, yeah. either keep them or kill them themselves or whatever, you know, or take them to... We yeah, have that's to. on the horizon for Philly. We're going to be a no-kill city. We announced that. I can't that. say yeah. that there's a... I haven't seen any change in... It's a long story. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, we need to combat. We need to deal with that. And we need to stop having I, people I have ideas for this. put... Stop feeding them. So I want to... At the very least. Tackle... We'll mention a couple more studies. And this is more on the... Again, sort of critical of, of trap neuter release now. One is... Is called The Evolution of Euthanasia and Trap Neuter Return Programs in Managing Free Roaming Cat Populations, published in Wildlife Research by Paige Schmidt, Todd Swanick, Roel Lopez, and Margaret Slater, basically saying that at low immigration rates, euthanasia or trapping and removing is modeled to do better than trap neuter release. They have a discussion in there about places where TNR hasn't worked, which is worth mentioning because Alley Cat Allies won't tell you about where it's it's utterly failed just like any advocate you're not going to go well it didn't work over there miami dade parks they talk about that didn't seem to work and then i'm going to segue right into the next one to save us some time we have a big one in the criticism of tnr literature if that's a thing called the analysis of the impact of trap neuter return programs on populations of feral cats by patrick foley janet foley Again, Julie Levy or Julie Levy and Terry Paik. Um, and so this is one which I put together with the Rome study in sort of tempering expectations for trap neuter and release programs in big cities, sort of outside of a university campus, basically. Um, so once you get out into the into bigger landscapes of cats, they were looking at sort of what are the characteristics and the age profile of cats being brought in by caretakers of outdoor cats and sort of looking at those as indicators of what the population looks like. Correct me if I'm, if I'm praising this wrong, but in a nutshell, that like that in, in San Diego and uh, in Alachua County, actually, where Julie Levidator study that we talked about being so famous, you still see similar proportions of intact and pregnant cats coming in um, that are being trapped. And that if you really wanted to get ahead of cat reproduction, you'd have to get something, but this is the number you'll see pop up a lot now, between 71 and 94% sterilization rates um, of the cat populations. And that's far greater than what they seem to be doing. And so it's sort of like, I don't know, sort of like these two studies are again backing up this idea that like, it almost doesn't matter what you do or kill them or don't kill them. Partly if you keep feeding them outside, and then if you have people just breeding pet cats and dumping cats, then it's, it's going to be really hard to get ahead of this. They're sort of right in line with, with all of this is in that we're just seeing the ineffectiveness of pretty much all of these things. If the goal is to reduce the number of cats, none of these things do that. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> none of these things seem to work. Unless you can sort of draw boundaries around a place, right? And and right. And maybe a park is like that. If you have like a a park where your rangers can range, and they have, right. and you can go out every Tuesday with your twenty twos, mm-hmm. and like pick off the cats, and then you just get that steady effort. And 
maybe then you can get ahead of it, but like in sort of the landscape of Philadelphia or something like that. Like right. good luck. You yeah, know? yeah. That's just it. I mean the I mean as much as I'd like to turn Tony loose with the twenty two <laughs> and see what happens in West Philly, it would be uh Pelican. We'll yeah, Pelican. <laughs> yeah, Pelican. It would it's it's just not a practical solution is what it comes down to, is that you've got to balance all these other factors. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about all of this, this whole discussion is that is the notion of people feeding outdoor cats. Yeah, so, yeah that's what we got attacked. I mean, that's really, that's really a big issue here because if you're going to say that outdoor cats are a thing and you want them to be a thing and, they, and you think that they're, I mean, as you said earlier, people view them as part of the ecosystem. And at this point, they've become part of an urban ecosystem. They, they are, there is a, there is a yeah. they're part of it. Good, bad, or otherwise, just like every invasive species or exotic species becomes. Rats are part of birds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but the reality is, is that, for example, I love birds, but yeah. I don't feed them because, yeah. to me, that's disrupting the natural. I don't feed them. I feed the only time I feed them is when it's when it's when it's there's been snow cover on for more than a week. Which never happens anymore. <laughs> so I have a bag of moldy bird food in my basement because of that. Well, I feed all food for your purely yeah. because yeah. I like purely because I want to see them. Yeah, right. And I want to. Um, I think in nature study you have a different argument. Like you right. want to be able to show people the bird. Yeah, right. right. And but studies have shown that they still always get the vast majority of their food from wild sources. You well, know? the other thing I don't like to do is I don't like to feed English sparrows. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. Which is what, in my neighborhood, I'm feeding most of the time. And yeah. because they, yeah. I would prefer to feed other songbirds, but I don't get to do that because of what's what's there. So Yeah, you just never know when, like, you know, people are feeding in, in suburban Reading, people were f- had a feeder out, and the next thing you know, a blackback oriole, which should be no closer than central Mexico, showed up. Now that I've read all this stuff and really gone through it um, more than I had before, and I look at sort of what are our goals and what are we trying to accomplish and what can we accomplish? I mean, part of me is like, I want every kid in every block to have a good chance to see interesting wildlife that could be here. I know, I mean, because I've seen a couple of them. Like, I see even just like white-throated sparrows or juncos moving through the neighborhood and like hopping around near the ground, I'm like, man, that's total cat bait right there. And when, and like, I, yeah, when, I, when I first got to, I want more of those. Yeah, and to like take it like you know another step. I when I first got to Parks and Rec, I you know I was really gung ho. I mean, I still am, but I I was working in an area that had you know it was a hick, and we had three sizable brushy meadows that we maintain. Bob white quail like that habitat during awesome. st- decline. Um, I was thinking, um, right, but, uh, I, I looked into that. It looks like the research says that dogs to birds, it doesn't matter. A dog on a leash, off a leash, like the, uh, just as scary. Yeah. It's to me, I looked into the literature on, on dogs off leash and it looked like it's more like whether the presence or absence of dogs doesn't really matter whether they're leashing out to the animals. And it's more like that to me is more of a human enjoyment impact yeah. rather than wildlife impact you know mm-hmm. i had a, you know this you know that's an argument that not i don't bring up when it comes to off-leash dogs about the wildlife impact because it doesn't seem like they have any impact on ground nesting birds it's just it's more like it's a it's an impact on people's enjoyment if you don't like you know you, people are scared of a, of a dog that off a leash it doesn't matter if it's the best behaved but dog I in the world dog loving friends whose dogs are a little bit sensitive and exactly like that's the issue there yeah I'm when I when I so I wrote I look, I did a, I got literature I looked up to it those programs the game commission will provide you Bob, Bob White, White yeah. reintroduction I said this these areas might be perfect for Bob White Negro. there's also the Erdenheim Meadow Dixon Meadow in that Erdenheim is really big nearby I was like oh we could have maybe even you know because um, Bob White in the winter where there's where the um, forest open up they'll they'll range more you yeah. know so um, maybe we could even have some dispersal into different areas. So I, I, I talked to our land, you know, the natural lands, and first thing he said is, they'll get hammered by the cats. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's no point. They'll get, and he's right. Like, yeah. you know, like the, the, you know, we're not far enough away from the houses, and and the cats will get them, and, we, you know, there's no point. You need your meadow with, like, a few hundred yards of forest buffer around yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to keep the cats out. We have to advocate for it, and I think that and make it as much of a social justice 
argument as it is a wildlife argument. Right. That like we have a city full of kids who, you know, it's, we are not a wealthy city. Not everybody in the city can afford to like take their kids on vacations to Acadia National Park or even French Creek, you know? Yeah. And like, so what you want is to have good biodiversity where Philadelphians can see it. And part of that is saying, okay, we, you know, if you want to have your cat in your house, great. You want to have your cat in your alley. Okay. We don't like it as much, but just keep the cats out of the places where our, where Philadelphians have a chance to see some rich biodiversity. And then the number two rabies vector in the state. And that's a paper we didn't really get to, but like, you know. um, that, well, that there's a whole, there, there's an argument. I think it's, a, it's a, it makes me a little nervous um, that on the one hand, the cats, there are different vaccines, but generally like the, the cat rabies vaccine, you're supposed to get like a one year booster after the first vaccination. And then every three years after that, from what I see at the TNR programs, they'll, they'll, they'll vaccinate them once and not come back for them. Um, you don't know that, and this is what we were talking about, some other ones that you don't necessarily trap all the cats that you're feeding or that are part of that little population. And then you're also feeding lots of wildlife, raccoons, skunks, foxes, that are rabies vectors. Right. So you're making this like you're sort of concentrating your vectors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're mingling. You know? yeah. And plus, it's you know, we don't want to get our wildlife accustomed to being fed. Hey, podcast listeners! I'm going to drop in one more article here about the rabies risks of TNR and just in general of of, of managed colonies. And this is by Roebling and a whole bunch of other authors. It's called Rabies Prevention and Management of Cats in the Context of Trap, Neuter, Vaccinate, Release Programs, Zoonoses, and Public Health is the journal. Um, We hope you enjoy it. It's from 2013. But but what I'm getting at is that I think I want to make more of a point of talking to my neighbors who feed cats and like, hey, please... I, I don't know if I can stop you from this, but understand that not everyone on the block is in favor of what you're doing. Uh, and also try to turn them on to say, hey, like, you might just think all we got is English sparrows out here or house sparrows out here. Here's other stuff I see and I'd like to see more of. Right. And But that to, to focus our efforts on the feeding in places that are particularly sensitive. There's two things I want to make sure we talk about with you before you go. Okay. One is you sound like you... I have an opinion about Alica allies already. Yeah. But, so what's your impression of Oh, it's the vacuum effect. Yeah. yeah. Well, their whole thing about the vacuum effect, which... Well, I mean, it's not... It's not... It's not wrong. It's... There, there is, seems to be a vacuum effect in the sense that there just keeps being an influx of cats, new cats into the system. Yeah. And that really seems to be the problem, right? Is yeah. that, like I said, you turn off the spigot... But the analogy that you see with Chicago gun control is actually kind of similar, right? Chicago has really strict gun control laws, but Gary, Indiana doesn't, <laughs> say, right? Yeah, doesn't. And, and Gary's the problem, <laughs> right? Is, yeah, right. No one around. <laughs> Missouri doesn't. Not, 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 not just the city. Not just, it's, you know, it's not a statewide thing. It's just a citywide thing. And so it, yeah. there's an influx of, of weapons coming from there. And, and so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a hard argument to make, especially when you have an N of one. Right, that's the other problem, and the other thing too is that I didn't the the fact that cats are living on a sub first of all, what is a sub Antarctica island? It's those islands that are in the southern within Ar- within the 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 Arctic or sub Antarctica. It said sub Antarctica and so sub Antarctica island. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, the argument about about an, ar- an about island where this they island where they killed the, the they tried to eradicate cats. It took cats a lot of effort. Yeah. yeah, but my point they, they use it as an argument is why there's a vacuum effect. It's futile. It worked though. In the end, they did. It, it. did. It did. <laughs> it worked. You know why? Because there's no way for more to get in, and so you can't kill them. And that's like I said, that's the problem. But also that, the vacuum effect. If you reduce cats by adoption and by lowering the reproductive rate, is wouldn't that create a vacuum effect just as well, much I mean, as the problem? The, the, other, the, the other problem that you have is that somebody has a cat, or they bring in a stray cat, and then they don't get the cat, they don't get the cat neutered or spayed, right? And then the cat gets out, or they let the cat out because it was an indoor, it's an indoor outdoor cat. It goes out, it gets bred by an alley cat, by a tom, and then it comes back, and then they have eight kittens and they don't know what to do with them so what do they do they put them back on the street yeah and so it just it's just perpetuating so the key here is not feeding outdoor cats right 
and not putting out indoor cats outside. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Cats, if you want to have a pet, then be a responsible pet owner and keep your animal in the confines of your own home where its impact is limited to you and your guests and family. Right? I mean, like I said, the analogy to my dogs, no one... There's a dog that gets loose in our neighborhood literally once a week. And everybody gets annoyed with it because it comes into your yard and it will yeah. run up to your kids. And it's not a mean dog. It's a very friendly dog. It's a little bit of a hassle. But, but it is a hassle because it is nerve-wracking that you don't know that dog, right? I don't like dogs that I don't know very well. I mean, I don't like to in a, encounter them in, in a non-controlled environment. And, and, it's, and, it, and the thing about it is, is that, you know, there are cats running back and forth across my lawn routinely and i know whose houses they belong to so keep them indoors they are impacting and and the research is pretty clear on this is that we you've got to you, you just got to remove the influx because the other management techniques are going to be without you know, that and, yeah. and i and i have to say that before eight o'clock this morning i had no idea of any <laughs> of what the story <laughs> would be to be quite honest and yeah, so yeah, so right. i mean it's a it's an opinion that you know, and I, and I am all for preserving natural wildlife. I mean, that, I do come at it from that side of it. So, um, because I, I think that nature does everything better than we ever will. But, um, and I and I have to say that the Alley Cats pamphlets are trash. <laughs> I mean, they are propaganda at the highest they form. Are. I mean, they bend. They're bending the results of scientific studies. Fake news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Problem is the well, the well financed fake news. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. I yeah. mean, it's just like like you commented before about no, the, they've got their posters up there. The Heartland yeah. Institute. Yeah. Do they really? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the Heartland Institute mails me their annual reports every year. I get them in my mailbox unsolicited. Yeah, and then you, you wonder what mailing list was it that got you on that. Yeah, that well, it's hard to tell. Well, you're a climate change scientist. Yeah, so and they send them to our libraries, and yeah. thank God we have a great science librarian at St. Joe's because she throws them <laughs> away. She literally, and it's funny because I, I was throwing them in. It's all about the tilting of the axis. Oh the... God! Well, I mean, yeah, Milankovitch <laughs> cycling. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's well, true. That's the unfortunate part of that is that every good lie has some truth in it, right? <laughs> that's the problem. Is the Milankovitch cycling actually does impact climate, and we have gone into ice ages because of it. But that's not what's happening now. Yeah, yeah, and we know that. But I actually was throwing those in the garbage one day when I was when I got them, and John Braverman, one of my colleagues, said, he said, "Aren't you going to put those in the recycling bin?" And I was like. Mm. I don't want any chance of these things ever resurfacing again. <laughs> but we're just I'm burying them in the trash heap for once and for all here. But all yeah, right. yeah. So guys, um, the the one thing I'll say about the vacuum effect pamphlet is that it doesn't look much at house cat vacuum effect. Right. It it, expra- it, 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 it takes a lot of other animals that have, let's say, mountain lions, you know, and sort of applies mountain life sorry applies mountain lion ecology to, to house cats um, well I think we should I mean I think we should run with that I think we should take them on that take them up on that what their point and we should study mountain lions with augmented feeding we should we should like we should put we should put out a deer carcass yeah we should feed and... mountain lions and see if they're popular and see how that works you know what I mean like we yeah. should we should we should look at the populations where you where you dump extra mountain lions and you and you supplemental feed them and and compare that with areas where they're removed yeah. you know like that yeah. like that's let's make it like there was some sad news about eastern mountain lions just last week two weeks ago they came out they've, they've basically been declared extinct yeah, yeah which is interesting because I'm, I'm curious about the timing of that because i understand that 50 years is the mark if an adult yeah but like um the uh now we're getting more and more mountain lion sightings um there was that one that was uh, Iowa. And yeah. Well, yeah. they know that they're established in the Upper Midwest, and that there's and they looked at the DNA on those, and they're related to the uh, um, to the Black Hills population. So they they clearly moved yeah. east, but and they found some in um, um, there was you know cabin traps and some hares. Oh, they're coming. Yeah, 
and then one was killed. You know, uh, well, right. I, I, I hope they make it back. I don't think they will because they have such a large territorial area that they need. They need to. Um, when I was a kid in West Virginia, we you know, the Allegheny Plateau. You could have some. Yeah. No. Well, that's it. So I was. This was probably. 90 89 88 between 88 and 90 yeah Yeah, i think so because we we had so we had we had a cabin in the west yeah (laughs) yes yes a lot of deer um we had a we have my grandfather built had a cabin in in the mountains in pocahontas county west virginia and we would go up on friday nights and so we'd have to go up on a mountain about halfway up it to a spring to get our water for the cabin because we didn't have running water in it and we were sitting there one night, and he was loading. We had old milk cans, which is, tells you how old all of this is. Uh, we had old milk cans that we filled with water, and we put, he was, we would put them in the back of the truck, and I threw them in. And my grandfather stayed in the back of the truck to relieve himself. And he, but we had the lights on, shining up the road of of the from the spring. And I jumped back in the cab of the truck, and I saw eyes below the road. So it was cut in the mountainside, you know. So it was a steep drop on this side that cut the road, and then. And it yeah. was it was probably a lane and a half. It was a gravel road cut yeah. into the side of the mountain. And there's a set of eyes low on the low side. Fully expected it to be a deer that was just going to pop up over the the yeah. road, you know. And I'm sitting there, and my grandfather coughed. And when he coughed, it jumped out off the lower side of the road to the. And when it did, it cleared the entire road, damn near the entire road. In my mind, I have it not touching the the gravel. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if it did that. But when it stretched out, it was a large cat. It was Bob, definitely Bob a large cat. cat. Could have been a bobcat, but it seems so much bigger than that to me. I know, but when you're you know, at nighttime. It was night and it was far away, so yeah. it could have been a bobcat. I've seen bobcats. Bobcats, but male bobcats can get really pretty big. I, mean, yeah, I don't yeah. think people realize how big they get. Um, but it could have been a bobcat. But they're... they're but well, that area was known for, for spottings of mountain lions because right. there was an old rock quarry that they had dug limestone out. Yeah. So there's there was old you know the old timers had tales of I these know, mountain but... lions using those quarries. But but you know I always wanted it to be that, but I've never been able to confirm it. And that's the problem is that all of these that. sightings are anecdotal. It's just like the ivory billed woodpecker, right? Yeah. I mean, like they were seeing people were seeing those for. Ages. Yeah, why is it know. never the DNR staff that's seen exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the people that are out there trying to find them? It's interesting. My friend, um, my friends. I don't even know. I remember this guy's name, but my friends, fellow punk rockers, moved to Philly from Arkansas for some reason. And so I knew a bunch of kids from Arkansas. It's well known. Yeah, punk rock migration. Yeah, and <laughs> and anything's better than Arkansas. And you, yeah, and you hear these <laughs> people tell you stories, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I don't believe it. But song? do you remember when the Metro? The free newspaper used to have an animal story every week, and it every every day was an animal little animal story. They stopped doing it, but my friend told me a story of how um, his friend was the guy who found evidence of mountain lions in Arkansas, and he's a big cat expert out there, and and that's been yeah, verified that's a real that, thing. that there's a population. Yeah. He told me a story of how his friend was asked. Uh, they had a there was a security camera on a culvert, and they saw what they saw were uh, uh, two mountain lions. So he, they sent him the. He, I don't know if he went to them. They went to him. Whatever he went to review the evidence. I mean, review the tape. Yeah. And he was like, "This isn't mountain lions. These are African lions, right?" And I always heard a story. And then I saw they got out in the somewhere. metro and said, "In Arkansas, two African lions were found, and I guess they killed them to like get them out of there. But there were there. So apparently, someone they had gotten someone, released. Yeah, had a one of these." The fact that pets just Yeah, and there's a... Um, Who in their right mind would do that? I mean, I that's mean, like, an animal I, that can kill you in a matter of seconds. I can go online right now and order you up a whole bunch of cobras if you want. It'll be delivered to your house. My friend oh, is a, is a that's animal my, control... That's literally my worst nightmare. I am not a hurt guy at all. At all. So my friend's an uh, animal cop in... in, in, in uh, um, we should interview him some of these days uh, in Austin. Right, yeah, he, and he, uh, um, I think I talked to him. He said he doesn't think he has enough wildlife stories, but he responded, and, and this is in the news. He responded to a guy who committed suicide by cobra. He, well, he, well, Cleopatra. He met his cobra. He let his co- he, he like got his cobra. He got in his car with his cobra and had and it killed him. And then the cobra got loose, and they had it, and they got ran over. Luckily oh, yeah. for society, not for the cobra, but like, how crazy is that? I, I thought what you're going with with the gun analogy, 
what was a uh, was the fact that most of the anti-gun literature is from medical doctors and and most of the pro TNR stuff is from th- that and oh. my whole thing and tell me what you I know, your impression of what well t- no, no no what I'm asking you I, I'm asking to be this is something I I, I think I want I want to say outside my head and be open up to criticism what do you what's your take on like I, I studied under you and you know the next step for me would be get a PhD so you you learn you it's a it's a, you learn how to how to perform research right but vet vet schools and med schools are essentially trade schools you're not trained uh, to be a research scientist yeah. in, no, in the same no, kind I, of way that's not true i would say that that's not true i mean there are academic medical there are academic scholarly you know scholarly yeah, medical doctors yeah i mean that's i mean most yeah. of the staff at most of the mds employed by the the hospital the university of pennsylvania are also Researchers, researchers yeah. doing real research, and many and many a high concentration of them here have both PhDs and MDs. In fact, or MPHs, um, well right? Well. Right, exactly. Uh, that Julie uh, Levy has is a DVM PhD, so she's yeah. got a dual degree, so she's done both. But I would say, I would say it's fine, and I would also say that there's not. Um, I didn't see anything. Nothing. I, I almost expected some of this, these papers to be total crap in just the way that they were performed. And I, and I don't do this kind of research with mark recapture and things like that. But, I mean, I've studied those in plenty of ecology classes through the years. And it, all, of it seems, all of it seemed pretty legit. Their numbers were good. And so I, I, I think that they're okay. But, but, I, but, they, but that doesn't mean you can't tell a story. I, yeah, and I think the, the, the part for me that I that I jump on in that is more the call it the sociological angle of it. I don't know that that your their goals are gonna be a little different. I mean if you're coming at this from if you're a wildlife ecologist or something like that, you're you're or an ecologist an ecologist whatever, that your your focus is broader. Um, if you're someone who's coming out of a veterinary school and why you went into this and what you do is taking care of people's pets. Yeah. You're going to have a very different viewpoint of those animals and look at them differently. And your goals for those animals are going to be different than if you're, um, an ornithologist, you know, like, or if you're a wildlife educator, sorry, environmental educator, um, like you are, like I am by hobby, you know, like that we have, we have a, a, what we define as what's important is broader than if you're a small animal vet um, and your passion is is the, the health and lives of cats, you know? No, I think, I think the other thing is, too, is that you... I mean, these, these, do, these papers do lean towards somewhat of activism in a little bit, in, a, in, a, in some ways. Like, that's, that statement in the Italian abstract is, is somewhat inappropriate, right? Yeah. I mean, like, it's not really for you... To, in my opinion, and this is, although I'm moving in the opposite direction of my own my own thoughts on this now, is that, you know, we we obje- we objectively put data out there, and then policymakers use that data. Theoretically, that's how government and society should work. But yeah. unfortunately, in the United States right now, we're not doing that as much. But um, but that right, that's for them to decide, and that's and actually. That's 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 been a big discussion that's happened in my community oh, for the yeah. last few years. It's <laughs> like where where do where where do we start? And Michael Mann is one of them who's really moved. He's it's a nice Penn that State, you, feel you so know. Neutral on this guy, yeah, but. yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. Like like eventually we have to be like, hang on a second, you're missing the point here, right? That we need to we need to move in this direction. But I mean, like all the time. I mean, Scott Pruitt has said just recently made comments about. How climate change is probably going to be good for planet Earth because, you know, humans do better under a warmer world and more CO two is going to produce more vegetation and increase agriculture productivity and all this stuff. And one of the, the things oceans are way too basic. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really just like chaps my ass hardcore is that some of that's my data. Like I, my dissertation was on the response of photosynthesis to CO two, and most of the time it goes up a lot, a lot. <laughs> Which is an argument for it, right? Is that if that's your goal? But the but the problem is, is that 
it's the giant storms and sea level rises that we have what to really think about too. So actually, I want to wrap us. I want to ask you about one more paper. I, so you heard about. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. By this point, you might have discovered that I've chopped this into two episodes um, because we got a couple hours of tape on this. Um, so thank you for listening to part two of our <laughs> dive into the cat literature. And uh, if you like this episode, please rate us highly on your podcast listening platform of choice. Please tell your friends about it. Please get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or urbanwildlifecast on Twitter. Um, Clint, thank you very much for joining us for a dive into something that's not your job. Um, <laughs> yeah, and if you think of, um, I've, you know, I've been talking to you about having you on the podcast for a long time. Yeah. Um, but if you, you oh, know, yeah. let's talk any, about plants at some point. Anytime you want to, you know, <laughs> talk about, you know, we, next time, we, you know, when we have another plant related content, we'll get you in on it. And if yeah. you also want to, you have something that you want to um, talk about, you know, urban plant well, like related. The, the let's, park you're sorry. working on in uh, yeah. Ardmore. Yeah. 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 So um, with that, thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>